0: I'm Katherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Katherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author, philanthropist, and former nanny, Florence Ann Romano. Uh, the topic today is how to raise a more connected generation. According to a recent survey by the global health service company Cigna, the loneliest generation in the United States today is not the oldest Americans, but the youngest, specifically young adults between 18 and 22 years old. Students may have thousands of friends online, but few in real life. As a result, they feel disconnected from what it means to be human. Florence Romano, the Windy City Nanny, offers insight into the loneliness of Gen Z individuals. She's the CEO and owner of Kindred Content, a full-service video production company based in Chicago, and serves on the executive board of the Children's Research Fund at Lurie Children's Hospital. Welcome to the show, Florence. Nice to have you on again. Hi. so good to be with you again. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great because uh, you're an expert in many fields, obviously, as a nanny, but also, I mean, this specific topic of how to raise a more connected generation. So, we're talking about alienation, loneliness from this age group, 18 to 22. Um, I I suppose, I'm not exactly sure what the percentages are, but you can tell me if they're 18 to 22, they can either be out working or they're in college. So, it's a slightly, those are different demographics. So, what are the contributing factors to these feelings of alienation and loneliness in this group? It's such a
1: small uh, age group that we're dealing with. There, with I think, is their own you know generation. They they have their own letter attached to them, I believe. Uh, but really, you know, the idea of what you brought about—social media and all the friends that they have—it's very superficial. And going one step. Further, I truly believe that social media is to blame for this idea of loneliness, not just for the fact that they don't have these real friends in real life, but what goes on in the social media world is what's very troubling in terms of bullying, in terms of the influencers and the measuring stick that this 18 to 22 year old gap is using to validate themselves. All of these factors contribute to that feeling of loneliness, and there's also a rising statistic that this age group is also more prone to suicide. So we're seeing something that is becoming exponentially a larger problem, and I think the common denominator is social
0: media. Yeah, I think that's true, but and, and I've Also read that there are other contributing factors. Yes, social media obviously is right up there, but there's also a lack of connectedness. It seems with this group, they don't connect to neighbors, they don't go to to church or synagogue. That's another way of connecting. They don't. And I was also thinking about when they go to when they go to work, for instance, you don't connect with your coworkers as much. You're not schmoozing with them. Yeah, you're right, Catherine. I mean,
1: they're they're this connectivity that you talk about in terms of a community. We don't have that old school mentality anymore where kids are outside playing with the neighbors when they're young and they're having, you know, just have to use their imaginations, God forbid, when they're when they're growing up. You know, it's it's all about the computer and these tablets and, and just this technology. And I always say I'll never condemn technology, but Just like everything needs moderation, this is something that needs that too. But we also live in a world today where there is very little moderation anymore. Everyone lives in the extreme. You're either one side or the other. And I think that comes uh, into play when it comes to children learning social skills. And you're right. They're not getting out there and learning those social skills from a young age. And it you have to blame someone for it. And I'm sorry to say that... We have to blame those that are raising the children for not giving them the opportunities to do that or encouraging to do that, make sure they're playing sports, make sure they're being involved in philanthropy from a young age. They learn about compassion and giving back and all these values that you want them to grow up with to be a well-rounded individual, and then eventually having to go get a job and sit in front of a live human being and actually have to have a conversation. And that's so difficult for that 18 to 22-year-old gap, and don't even get me started about the entitlement issue that comes along with that too, which I also think is isolating.
0: Well, let's get you started. Let's talk about the entitlement. <laughs> yeah, you well, piqued my interest. Go ahead.
1: So, entitlement uh, for for this generation, uh, everyone seems to, in this age gap, and I, I hate to generalize. It's not everybody, but I've seen very, very often that this age gap thinks that they are owed something that they don't have to necessarily work for it, fight for it, chase it, uh, that it should just be handed to them. And it starts when they're younger. You know, everyone gets a medal now for everything that they do, and there there's no competition, and, you know, it's just for fun. Well, I don't agree with that. You know, life is hard. Life is not fair. Life is about competing. It's learning to be graceful when you lose and pick yourself back up again. And knowing that that word failure, I would say it's the big F word, is such is such a foreboding word today. No one wants to talk Talk about failure when it's so important and it shouldn't have this horrible negative connotation attached to it. I've fallen down plenty of times. I will fall down even more times. But you have to keep going. And I feel that we are not teaching this generation those values, and that is not going to serve them in the, in the long run.
0: Yeah, uh, what about the parents? That, because what I hear you saying is also that these parents have to be very deliberate parents. It's their responsibility to engage their kids, as you say, in activities where they are going to lose, where they are going to to experience failure, failure, and then have to deal with it. And you know, with and and, and that's a learning experience, and it's also motivating. And also, as you said before, like engaging them in activities. They're going to be maybe different activities than maybe the generation before, but you have to be very deliberate about doing it. Because I think schools used to be more involved in in getting kids in. I mean, some of the sports programs no longer exist. Music programs, programs that get kids engaged, they're gone. So parents really have to be vigilant about... They do.
1: Right. You're exactly right. They have to be vigilant and they have to expose them to different opportunities. Kids just don't grow up knowing what's out there for them to do. They, You have to have an open conversation with your children as they age about what their interests are, what their strengths are, and help them cultivate those things. I'm not sitting here saying, you know, don't tell your child that they're wonderful or encourage them or, you know, give them praise. Of course, there's a time and place for that. But it's the idea of parents today shielding their children from any sort of uh, hurt that could come from competition or anything like that, and stroking their ego so much that they think that they're, you know, God's gift. You know, again, this is the pendulum swing. Where is the middle? We're, we're still missing this middle. And when it comes to exposing them to the activities, like you said, yes, it might not be the same thing that we did growing up or, you know, even people that are a few years older than this age group. But there are opportunities for that. It could be a book club. It could be theater. It could be any of these things. It could be, they could be getting involved in their community and it could not be through their school. Like I said, philanthropy, I'll always go back to this. I think in today's world, there is such a need for children to learn from the jump how to be compassionate. And compassion is taught through many different ways. But one of the best ways to do that is through philanthropy and getting them involved in some sort of give back when they're young, if it's age appropriate also, is really beneficial. And also there are so many beautiful stories of humanity on YouTube and places like that where all these kids are spending so much time. Let them look up, you know, stories about kids their age who are doing inspiring things and let that inspire them and maybe use that as motivation. So again, there are so many different ways to connect this lonely generation. You just have to find what works for the child.
0: Yeah, and I think you have to start young. I'm sort of as you're describing it. I'm thinking of something that happened with my three-year-old, three and a half-year-old grandson, who has uh, twin brothers who are one and a half. And of course, he's always taking all the toys away from them. They're his toys. There. And I mentioned something uh-huh. about sharing. Do you like to share? And he said, "Well, and he a little tiny bit I do, just a little tiny bit. So nice. I thought, well, okay, that's a start. But then so kind of going off of what you're talking about, like say a four-year-old, there are kids who have no toys or they have very limited access to toys or to do fun things. Maybe he should be introduced to those kids. Is four years too young or, you know, is it, uh, I mean, because I, that's, You can be a philanthropist by giving another kid a a toy or being aware that there are kids. Yeah.
1: You're right. It's as simple as that. Simple acts of kindness should not be undervalued. I mean, we learned that from Mr. Rogers years and years ago. And that still remains true today. So not overcomplicating it, not overthinking it. My best friend's mom has this wonderful phrase, and she always said growing up she would say to her kids, as soon as a child would start a sentence with I, she would look at them and say, you better be ending that sentence with something you're going to do for somebody else. And I have used that now, you know, for so many years because I thought it was such a beautiful illustration of the value she was instilling in her children. And her children are amazing, amazing individuals, like angels on earth, you know, without wings. They are. And there is something to be said, like to your point, Catherine, about starting it when they're very young. And however you're going to teach that lesson is fine. It doesn't have to be the way she's teaching it, but it's the way you want to instill those values. But in order to do that, you also have to know what your values are as a mom, as a dad, as a person, as a family. You have to do that work for yourself too and take accountability.
0: What about, we haven't really tackled this one, but when we're talking of, you know, 18 to 22 is a huge, is a big age group. And like I said, in the beginning, like the demographics of it, I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, you talk about working-class families, middle-class families, upper-middle-class families. I mean, is there a difference? Because on one level, I see kids like who are going to college, for instance, and there are more kids going to college, as I understand it, this this semester, this year, than at any other time, at least in the United States. Those kids have opportunities. They, they travel more. A lot of them go with their families to different countries or family trips around the, the states and those kinds of things. And that gets them out in the world in a different way, whereas other kids don't have those kinds of opportunities. So are, do we break it down in terms of education and socioeconomic groups? or And then, of course, there are other categories too. I think you can.
1: I think it absolutely, if we dig deeper into that study, that we would see that broken down in that way. But I also think there's the flip side of the coin. You know, you look at these people who are so well accomplished in their life, and they seemingly have it all, right? We look at other adults and feel this way. And then when you get to know that person, you know, you you don't realize that there actually is a well of loneliness to them and where is that loneliness coming from? Is it is it mental illness? Is it is it because they have a hard time uh dealing with family situations or whatever it may self-esteem, whatever those things might be. I mean you look at these celebrities in the past few years, you know, that take took, took their life, Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain and these people that you look at from the outside and think, man, they have the perfect life you know, what could they be upset about? What could they possibly be lonely about or be so um, depressed about? You don't really know what goes on in the mind of a person, whether that's a young teenager or an adult. So uh, I think it's an onion that you have to peel. Um, but I do think a lot of the contributing factors do come into play today because of how visual and how influenced our society is by everything else out there. It's almost too much stimulus. It's, it's, too many people out there trying to tell you what to think or what to wear or how to look or you know what the measuring stick is, like I said before, so I know you know I kind of went to the extreme end of it, you know citing celebrities who have you know took, taken their own lives, but I do think it applies to the fact that no matter your socioeconomic uh, status or your education that it you don't necessarily you're not necessarily shielded uh, from from the things that might get you uh, regarding loneliness or depression.
0: Yeah, and depression is on. I, I don't know what the statistics are for that, but depression, you're right, is, is definitely on the rise, and the number of people taking antidepressants is huge. So, uh, and it and it really goes across all socioeconomic, educational, all of those things. That's true. So. In your experience, because now you are you are in the trenches, you are, well, for instance, I mean, I, as I read in the in your bio, it, on the executive board of the Children's Research Fund at Lurie's Children's Hospital. So what's your experience there at the hospital? Uh, you know, you're sort of hands-on. Yeah. I,
1: the, I love Lurie Children's. Uh, I am so honored to be a part of this uh, research board, and the research that we uh, helped, Support. Uh, We are actually the only board uh, that provides financial contribution and donations for the research that's done at Lori, which is one of the forefront uh, foremost hospitals um, in the country and actually one of the leading hospitals in terms of research for pediatrics. Um, So we're doing research for everything from Cancer to things regarding mental illness, um, and when the researchers and doctors and uh, you know clinicians come and speak to us about what they're seeing um, from children, uh, that idea of depression, like you mentioned, is a big uh, is a big part of it. Um, and not that they have a solve for it, but when you brought up the medication. Uh, Lots of people on medication today, and I am a complete believer in medication if you need it, but also what's being said is that there is the over-medication of, of children. Uh, as soon as there are signs of something, they put them on medicine, and this idea of, of working through something, of trying to get them mentally healthier and give them coping mechanisms and things like that to help them in their journey, uh, that's, that exists, but it's it's the the work being put into that in on the home front i think needs a, a a better focus and parents and nannies and caretakers they also need to be educated about how to help a child through a rocky time like that. Uh, it, it really does take a village. I always go back to that. Uh, and so when, you know, with my work at the hospital, I see many, many different cases um, regarding children, from the saddest things you can ever think about to unbelievable miracles that are happening in terms of med- medicine. Uh, so it's, it's really an honor to, to yeah. serve can on that. Can you give board. us
0: some examples of, like you say, you've, you've seen the worst, you've seen the best, and I'm sure, sure you've seen everything in between.
1: Sure. Uh, there was one little girl. Um, she has uh, a disease called spinal muscular atrophy, SMA. And what happens with these children is they are born with motor skills. But as they get to about two years old, they start to lose them and they never regain them. Um, and they, they have a shorter uh, mortality rate. It's a very, very horrible disease um, for children, and many, many, many people, children have died from it. And during my stay on, stay, or during my tenure on this board, I saw Lori participate in a study for an SMA uh, drug uh, that helps children regain their motor skills, and uh, a little girl was the case study that we used, and she it worked on her, and she started to regain her motor skills. She started to walk again, um, and her cognitive abilities uh, started to come back, too. It was unbelievable, and the saddest part of that story is there were researchers that were talking to us that say there were many children that died just before that drug was approved. Um, and so, you know, we take many leaps forward, um, but, you know, we stand on the shoulders of science, these children that um, did not survive, you know, in the clinical trials or elsewhere, uh, you know, God bless them, they got us to where we are, but that was a huge, huge uh, breakthrough for science uh, with that disease, uh, and I was unbelievably inspired by the story. And my production company that you mentioned before, we actually followed that story and presented it at their gala.
0: That's a great story. I mean, and, and I guess it, as you're telling the story, I'm thinking about, and you talk about connectedness and helping people, and and depression and loneliness. What about these parents who are able to? Obviously, connect with their children and be able to go through all of this. And how do they do it? Where does their strength comes? Where do their strengths come from?
1: Uh, it's a, an amazing question that I ask parents all the time because I see them as warriors. I mean, there are parents there that have spent three hundred and sixty-five days of the child's life, you know, as soon as they took their first breath in the hospital. I mean, an entire year living in a hospital room and not knowing when they're going to go home. Uh, and I'm so grateful that Lori provides such a family atmosphere and such a tribe of support for them while they're there. But it is a lonely journey. No matter how many people they have around them, they are still in it alone and in, in kind of in, uh, in this uh kind of this crevice of their mind, because as much as people love them and want to be there for them, they have to wake up every day and be strong to fight for their child. So as you know, and some parents don't have a spouse, and they are really in it alone, um, and making sure they're surrounded by the right people. So it's, there's no easy answer to it, other than I've never met a parent in that hospital that has not presented themselves with strength that you want to siphon and bottle because you don't know how a person like that can be doing it. But everyone's common denominator answer for that when you talk to a parent is what other choice do I have? I have to fight for my child. So they somehow summon that strength. And so to your point though, Catherine, I'm thinking as we're talking, it would be great to see the world use this strength that these parents are showing us. Yes, they're up against horrible odds. And not everybody's going to have a tragedy that motivates them but you have to believe that all of us somewhere in us have the strength to fight or keep going and it's just about being able to access that so if we could teach and encourage children to be able to do that i think we would have a much less lonely generation yeah,
0: i would agree with you and and they, th- these are the these are the people these are the families that are can be our role models um, that's a good, I mean, that has a good ending. Now, what about those who don't and where, because you've seen it all, as you've said, I mean, work. Yeah, yeah. right.
1: Um, I mean, when, when a baby dies, I mean, I'm going to say it very bluntly. Uh, that is a pain like no other that you, that you, that you see and that your heart just breaks over. Um, and, and And the reason why children die, their mortality rates attached to whatever their disease might be. At Lori, they do a lot of research on um, heart disease in in children that are born with with heart issues, a variety of them, and we're actually the, the leading hospital for that research and have... The less mortality rate than any other hospital, but also there are things about heart disease in children that are irreversible right now. When it comes to their cognitive abilities, uh, when it comes to their development, um, they really, really have a very, very hard road ahead of them. There's one little girl that was born with a whole host of issues. Spent that whole first year in the hospital. Very, very. Uh, medically fragile will always be medically fragile. She had, I believe, five open heart, heart surgeries in the first, want to say 30 days or so of her, of her life. Um, and she's still fighting, but there are many children that have her same host of medical problems, so delicate, so fragile that any virus that they get, even if it's a cold, can be the end for them. Uh, and so it's it's trying to find how to be able to, site DNA for the reasons why this is happening in, in, in utero and how we can perhaps do DNA testing to uh, eliminate uh, that, that genetic you know, um, flaw um, or how we can grow our own hearts from our own DNA, from our own saliva. I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but we're probably a decade away from being able to swab our saliva and then grow an, uh, our own heart again through like three D three D printing.
0: I mean, this so is, is the that stuff like stem cell? Do. Is that like when you can grow yeah. stem? Like stem cells are just? It, I don't know. i yeah. it,
1: It's similar. Yes, but um, you know, th- this is this is all stuff that is on the horizon. But the sad news is that we're not there yet, and within the next decade, we are going to lose many more children because we don't have a solve for it yet. So you know it takes a lot of patience. I mean, these researchers spend 30 years. I'm not kidding, 30, 40 years researching, having all different hypotheses, all different theories, and all of it failing. All of having to start all over again, and then finally reaching you know that that miracle moment. But it took 40 years to do it. That patience, that stamina, that failure that I went back to before. That's what these people are doing. Again, if we can teach our children to do what, to, to have the mental strength and the capacity that these people who are constantly fighting for the future, if we can teach people to be more like that, we would be a better world. You know, it, and so, you know, it shouldn't just be people that are looking to cure diseases that have this, uh, this mental stamina. Like I said, this should be something we're all practicing, that we should all be trying to better ourselves, better humanity, all of that. So I've learned a lot of life lessons being on this board. And like I said, I've seen a lot, I've heard a lot, and I look forward to the future and what we're going to be able to raise money for and make the miracles happen that we really want. Um, But I think the life lessons that you learn being on a board like this and seeing what you see really uh, are, are humbling. It's a really sobering thing. And I think if more people were exposed to role models like that, like you said it would really benefit society.
0: Well, you're a role model. And, and as you're talking, I mean, and and as people are listening to you and you can hear it, like, look what it, and this is just my assessment, but look what it's done for you. I mean, it sounds like you've just, it's just opened up all kinds of emotional doors for you and just being a part of all of this. And I assume uh, you're transferring this and you're sharing this with, with the world. So that that's, important work Uh, only a couple minutes left maybe three minutes left so yeah so can you just kind of what put it in your own words what what being involved and engaged and connected in this particular way does for you and um and can do for others who who do the same Regarding my my board, being on this board. Your board, your work, you started out, you're a nanny, you have a company, you do all kinds of things that you are connected, you are engaged. I'm assuming you're not lonely. (laughs) I'm making that assumption. (laughs) Or depressed. I don't know.
1: Yes. No, not lonely and not depressed, but of course, um, I, I think there are things that are always missing from your life. Like, I'm not married. I don't have my own children, I, and I would love those things to happen one day. So, you know, being completely honest with you and, and with the listeners, does that make me sad sometimes? Of course. Does that make me feel lonely sometimes? Of course. But is it the, is it the overarching factor of my life? Is it what I lead my life with? No. I have always been a person that has thought, You need to make yourself happy and then everything else that happens in your life just adds to that happiness, but you have to be happy. You are responsible for your own happiness. And so that's my message, honestly, for everybody, especially those that are feeling lonely and depressed. If you need help, ask for it. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not weakness. But you are responsible for yourself. And so take the steps you need to be mentally healthier, physically healthier, whatever it might be. Do philanthropy, like I mentioned, or, you know, get out there and join clubs so you make more friends and gather people around you that are like-minded and have values like yours. You know, you need to find your tribe. And I always say it doesn't need to be enormous. It's it's about, you know, quality over quantity. And I think that's something in my life I've always taken very seriously is the people in my tribe are the closest ones to me. I don't need a ton of friends. I have so many people that I know, so many different acquaintances, and that's wonderful and it's robust and that's great. It blesses my life in a different way. But those people that you really count on, especially when the cards are down, those are the people you need. So my my charge to everybody is if you don't have that tribe, start building it, even if it's one or two people, because that is going to make a big difference in your life.
0: Yeah, I think that's great advice. Find your tribe, and, and uh, it's the quality of your relationships. It's not how many relationships you have. Right. It's the quality, right? right? The quality right. of that kind of connectedness. Great having you on the show today. Again, One, uh, we, Florence Ann Romano. She's an author, a philanthropist, and a former nanny. Great talking to you. you. Thank you, Catherine. Always a pleasure. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show.